0: Thank you, Rosemary. One commentator I read this week said this is the most artistic and literary, maybe brilliant chapter in all of the Gospels. It is fantastic. Were you laughing? Did you see yourself? Did you see what was going on in the multi-layers of what Rosemary has just read? I'm going to try my best. We have a bit of a problem here. We have a few problems. Clock stopped at half nine. <clears throat> Always a worry. And my mother's coming in in the quarter to two train, so you can work out when I want to be leaving. Let's look at the <clears throat> second part of this. Jonathan last week looked at this miracle of this man who received a sight, and we want to today kind of get to the response to it. What went on after it? The debate. And we want to, in the multi-layered nature of this debate, find ourselves, insights into the psychology, the spirituality that is going on within us as we sit in Fitzroy this morning. Elle has already led us into some of the silence of our interior beings. What could we learn from some of the things that happen in the reading that Rosemary has just read from John chapter 9. I'm going to skate past the apathetic neighbours because they were sort of in those first 12 verses, but apathy is a good word for it. Something amazing has happened to their neighbour and they're almost trying to dismiss it. I leave that one with you. God in the presence and we maybe apathetically dismiss it. Let me move on to the parents and to something I think is really, really important here. The parents are brought into the debate and the discussion, and they immediately stand back from it and say, "Well, ask him. He's old enough. He's of age. We have no idea what happened." And then John points it out. Why did they say that and not respond? Because they were frightened that they would get thrown out of the synagogue, which would mean, in that culture, being thrown out of the very community altogether. It was. Was it Eddie Reader? who did that you know that you look back and see where you came from and she uh was annie lennox maybe it's just i prefer eddie reader as a singer um annie lennox went back to the middle of scotland and um to try and find out about great grandparents and find out how many of them had been in front of the session of the presbyterian church of scotland to be told off for the immorality and all the different things that they did because in those days in the middle of the 19th century. Session, we would have been in a more powerful place because anything that happened in this local area would have been brought to us and we would have sorted them out. Because getting thrown out of the Church of Scotland or being disciplined by the Church of Scotland was meaning to be thrown out of the community. Fear, fear, fear of being thrown out of the community. Fear. I live constantly. In fear, particularly in church circles, in Christendom. In fact, I will be as bold as to say that until I found Christ as a 17 year old, I had no idea what fear was. But since that time, I have lived in fear. Let me give you a couple of examples that we might laugh at, but were huge for me. While I was in Dublin, as the youth development officer of our church in the Republic of Ireland, under Rose's guiding managerial hand, bless her heart, if there's trauma, that might have been the three years. Montgomery was involved in some of it too. I was asked to speak. I went to this um, planning for an ecumenical youth event, and I was from Ballymena. And there was no such thing as ecumenical. We didn't even utter the word. It was like the Old Testament or the Jews who weren't allowed to say the word God. Don't use the E word. And I was from Balamina and I was determined because I was sorted. So I was called to this meeting of the four youth kind of leaders of the denominations. And I went in intrepidation. Fear. And I promised not to say a thing. Yeah, Graham, you're right. And I didn't for a long time. Near then, they decided we were going to have a youth rally. I was fearful. And that we were going to have it at Christ Church, which was Church of Ireland, which made me slightly less fearful. And they were coming up with an idea of what they might do at it. Unable to hold my tongue any longer, I said, well, look, we're all under the pressure of secularism, so we need to look at that issue. How does all the churches deal with secularism? And the wee Catholic priest who was the youth person for the Catholic Church in Dublin at that point jumps almost across the table and says, yes, and you'll be the speaker. No! No, I was desperately fearful. That was the end. Soundness, evangelical soundness was going, just drifting from me as I spoke. Somehow, as the speaker, I got on to the Father Cleary show, which at that time was the big chat show in the Republic that everybody listened into to because it was all the issues. And I went on in fear and trepidation. Now, the night before, at a mission um, sort of service for commissioning somebody to Nepal or somewhere, I had made some joke about the guy going. So he thought he would get his own back. And when it went to the air, questions on RTE, live to the air... Your cans are on. <clears throat> You're listening for that first question. You're fearful about all this as it is. <clears throat> and the first thing I hear is, this is lame from Lucan. And I know immediately what the voice is. And I'm thinking, don't get your own back live on RTE. Could the Reverend Stockman maybe tell us if he thinks the Orange Order is a Christian organisation? So I immediately break into, I don't think that's Liam at all. I think that's William. I think that's Bill. And Father Cleary's saying, well, now down here, you know, we would call them Liam. And I'm going, oh. So I have to answer the question. And there's no question. At that moment, I'm asking myself, how high are the Mourn Mountains? And would the airwaves get across the Mourn Mountains if I answered that question as I would feel? There was great fear that people would hear that I was going to speak at a night service. Probably, probably one of the most significant, significant events in my life took place when I did speak at that event. Maybe part of the journey here, but I was fearful. What would people say? Would I get thrown out of where I wanted to belong? Just the first Tuesday of February, we're voting for the moderator next year, and I seconded because Ruth got in before me to propose Liz Hughes as moderator. I was 52 before I could dare propose or second a woman to be moderator, because I feared what my community would think of me if I. Did an ecumenical rally or believed in woman in ministry? I live in fear. And I'll be honest with you, I live in fear every time I stand at this lectern. Because I fear that some of you will think that's good, some of you will think that's not good, some of you want me to do this, some of you want me to say this, some of you want me to take the passage that way, some of you want me preaching this. And I'm constantly living in the fear of criticism. I have never been in a community where I get more encouragement Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. But I still live in the fear that one of you might not like what I say. Fear paralyzes us. And maybe one of the things that we need to do as we think of Fitzroy's Mission plan or the session's plan to be 1010. If you're a visitor among us and you see our young people walking around with Fitzroy Youth and 1010, it's not my birthday though. It is my birthday, and I love to see them all walking around with my birthday date on their uh, hoodies. It's also John 1010, which is what we as a session feel that we want to be: life in all its fullness, life in all its fullness, pastorally, missionally worship-wise, spiritual formation-wise. And maybe one of the things we need to do for all of us is to make sure we're a space where people don't fear who they are and what they believe and what they should do or say. Fear. During the Four Corners Festival, Roddy Kai spoke right here, a professor of psychology at Queen's, just retired, and he talked about The psychology of peacemaking from the Sermon on the Mount and expounded the sermon. It's on our webpage. Listen to it. This is a profoundly powerful evening talk here in Fitzroy. And he talked about how most of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus dealing with all of our fears. That's what it's about. And the psychology of fear is that we don't respond to things or don't do things because of the emotion of fear that we have within us. These parents were frightened. If they told the truth about their son, they might get thrown out of the community because they wanted to belong. Belonging is one of our deepest psychological needs. We want to be loved. We want to be secure in that love. We want to find significance in a community of people. And when that's endangered for some reason, we will do all kinds of things to try and protect our sense of belonging. But... Though the belonging is our need, a misplaced belonging can be devastating to our following of Jesus. My friend David Dark, he's another guy, you should read his work. Um, he has written some profound stuff. Um, his son uh, came home this week from school. I think Sam's about 10, maybe 10 or 11, I don't know, around that age. And he came home from school and he said, Daddy, people in my class hide their fears. Pooh." There's a psychotherapist for the years ahead. A 10 or 11 year old aware that even in his class at that age, people are hiding their fears. Why? Because they want to belong. Fear paralyzes us. And what we then do is we create these labels. Evangelical, reformed, reformed evangelical, sound, unsound, ecumenical, liberal, charismatic, all these labels that we form in other people to label them to judge them, to maybe make sure we're not part of that community so as we can be part of that community, because if we're named charismatic, we might not be able to live in the reformed area, and if we're ecumenical, we certainly won't be able to be. And we have all these labels. It was really interesting at Skenos that night of the riots um, for uh, or the protest outside that turned a little bit into a riot that got the front page news at the Four Corners Festival. One of the things that was amazing that night was Jim Wilson, one of the leaders of the Loyalist community, standing up and saying, There's people out there and there's people in here, and there's people in East Belfast, and we're trying to outsuper each other. They're super prods and super super prods, and we're more prod than you're a prod because we want to make sure that we're the soundest. Do you see the forest season, some of this? But we're evangelical, but they're not as evangelical, and we have to have some church leaders writing blogs about being able to be ecumenical and evangelical at the same time, and we have all these labels that allow us to dismiss people. Fitzroy's dismissed. That's Fitzroy. Sure, Ken was here. And sure, Stockman got there. Sure, that was the only place he would have gone because they're charismatic, evangelical, not really evangelical, ecumenical, liberal. That's who we are. So out there, anything that happens from here can be dismissed. And what we need to be frightened of is, are we fearing that? Because being dismissed hurts, so am I going to try and say things that keeps me into certain labels, or will I speak the truth of scripture as I feel the spirit leads me to say it? Fear the parents are frightened. the Pharisees they're arrogant they have No sense of doubt, whatever. They know. Some of you have and I haven't seen Philomena. Many of you are recommending that we go and see the movie Philomena. Reminded me as I've read reviews, seen a few clips, heard some of the interviews, watched the BAFTAs, that it's very close in some ways to a movie that came out about 10 years ago called The Magdalene Laundries so these things happened within our island to young women who'd become pregnant We're having movies about them and when Magdalene Laundries came out there was an interview on one of the BBC programs, one BBC TV, Ulster TV programs where the The director was interviewed and he was asked, how could these things have happened to these young women? How could nuns, religious people, have thought that that was the right thing to do? And he said, funny, I asked one of the nuns and she said to me, with tears in her eyes, she said, it was all because of an absence of doubt. It was all because of an absence of doubt. I got a quote today, I don't know whether Luther said it or somebody said it for Luther, Martin Luther that is. The Reformation began, so the saying went, when there was a pope on the seven hills of Rome, but now there were seven popes on every dunghill in Germany. An absence of doubt. Can I say without fear to you that I hold my fallibility very preciously. Very, very preciously. That's where I'm going to be most reformed. I could be completely wrong. Because that's a better place than an absence of doubt. Because when you have an absence of doubt, you may do things without any critique. The Pharisees here have an absence of doubt. They know they are right And that Jesus is a sinner And they're almost questioning whether this man is seeing or not But he is seeing so he can't be the man that he was But he is the man that he was And if you look at that If you read this when you go home He winds them up and knots the whole way through it And has humour with them And they actually say at the end Are you lecturing us? Because we know we have an absence of doubt And there's no way that this Jesus could be from God Their absence of doubt allowed them to continue to live in the darkness when the light was right in their eyes. That's why I read Leonard Cohen at the outset of the service. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. There's no absence of doubt. If we have a perfect offering... The light ain't getting in. We don't need it. But the scriptures tell us that none of us have a perfect offering. All have sinned and fall short. That none of us are worthy. That only by grace. And that's it. It's the crack in you right now. What is that thing, that weakness, that temptation? that pull, that habit, that thing. That's where the light gets in. That's where the light gets in. The Pharisees didn't think there was a crack in anything of their theology or who they were. So there was no light getting in. It was the same as the rich young ruler when he came. He said, I've kept all those. There was no chance of grace making it in there. There was no chance of Jesus interrupting some perfect life that thought in an absence of doubt. The Pharisees feared too. They feared the power, the ground underneath them as we looked at in the last chapter. It's all fallen away. But it was their absence of doubt that wouldn't let the light in. And then finally, we have the fear of the parents the arrogance of the Pharisees and overwhelmingly we have the tenderness of Jesus and a life spiritually, socially physically and in every other way transformed the blind bagger what a journey and as I looked up just this morning the Leonard Cohen quote about the light coming in there was another verse. You can add up the parts, but you won't have the sum. You can strike up the march. There is no drum. Every heart, every heart to love will come, but like a refugee. But like a refugee. The blind bagger, actually, in this scene, is the one with the advantage. I've always thought this. When I worked on the townships around South Africa in those summers that we took students And we were on townships with poverty of quite an enormous, just image-wise and everything else, you just can't even think about how to live on those, and those weren't the worst townships in the world at all. You just sensed that the poor had nothing to lose and everything to gain about doing whatever Christ would ask. But the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the morally okay or think they're okay, the churchgoer may have most to lose. May have most to lose. The beggar had nothing to lose. Jean Vanier in a brilliant commentary on John. It's wonderful when you do these series, people tell you, read that, read that, and some people point at me to Jean Vanier. He says we defend ourselves in the face of hardness. We open up in the face of tenderness. We defend ourselves in the face of hardness. We open up in the face of tenderness. This blind bagger opened up in the face of the tenderness of Jesus. It doesn't say in this story of the blind bagger that he asked to be healed. He's brought out as a kind of a theological argument. Sort of look at him. How did he become blind? And in the midst of the argument Jesus gets beyond the debate, beyond the discussion and sees this man is not to be debated. This man is not to be theologically discussed. In fact if you Pharisees really were following the Old Testament you would be looking after this blind beggar. He wouldn't be a beggar. He wouldn't be sitting at the side of the road destitute because you following what God asks you to do in the Old Testament would be making sure that he wasn't lying there. But now you're just bringing him here as something to debate. Well I'm seeing past the debate and I'm just going to Play with a wee bit of mud here and put it in his eyes and touch him. Moment of real power for a blind person. Touching them. Giving them back dignity. Giving them tenderness and love. And in the midst of his brokenness, the light comes in where the crack in that man's life is. In the tenderness of Jesus. And he responds look at this chapter and you see how he responds where does he cross the line where does he come to faith where could we call him from our pharisaical place of evangelicalism he is saved where do you see i just got myself frightened again there be even asking that frightened but really i want to ask this question where does he cross the line Is it when Jesus enters into his life and begins a relationship with him? Or is it 30 verses later when he goes into a relationship with Jesus? Where does it matter? I don't think it does. I actually do think it does. I think it's where Jesus enters into his life even though he has no idea at that point who Jesus is. Verse 11 the man healed me verse 17 who is he he's moved from a man to a prophet verse 36 to 38 jesus comes back to him when he's thrown out of the community and tenderly tells him eventually that he is the son of god i was six years of age i've told you before waiting for the football on a sunday there wasn't many TV programs on in those days. There was just one on before the football, and I hated it. It was one of those highbrow interview things. Right in the last question, the guy says to the other guy, do you believe in God? I'm six, I'm seven. I move house when I'm seven and a half. It was in the old house. And from that moment, there was this thing that came into my life. In that moment, I can still remember where I was sitting. I can remember the carpet in that old house in that old flat in Gilgorm. I can remember where I was sitting on the settee. I can remember that question being asked. Why do you remember that question being asked? Because at that moment, Jesus, I think, played with the mud and put them in my eyes and said, I'm going to give you a question here, fella, and it's going to change the rest of your life. It was 11 years before I began to believe there was a God after that question. But I wouldn't ask any of those questions. Had Jesus not have done something in that interview that made me an atheist 11 years when did my Relationship with jesus start well if it's The same as this bagger verse 38 Was the 19th of may 1979 If it was the start of chapter 9 When jesus entered my life Then it was as a six-year-old coming to terms With the fact there was no god Let me finish Because i've been going on too long and i could go on for A whole lot longer i love this chapter Here's my last question to us I want us to go out into the week with this question I'm going out into the week with this question I've been living with this question for a couple or three days Who is our blind beggar? Because let's face it in this story We're not destitute We're pretty much together If you look at this story we're probably We know a bit of theology We probably know a lot of theology Maybe you think you might know too much theology So who In our city our country, or world this week, is going to be the blind bagger that Jesus used to reveal to us what we still need to learn about the light shining in. For some of her loyalist friends was Anna Lou, the racist vitriol that she took, somebody that they have dismissed out of their community, somebody they don't want to listen to. Do they need to listen? To her? Is she the blind bagger in their midst? I use that as a lead up because the blind bagger in my midst this last few days have been those people who protested out of the Four Corners event. The ones who the riot police had to curtail, the ones who I tried to get Anna back into a car between two armored Jeeps thinking, I hope this doesn't get back to Indiana. Are they the ones that I'm thinking, I know, they don't? They need to start behaving. They need to sort, are they the ones that Jesus might use to lead me into some truth? Who's our blind bagger? Who's the least likely? Because in this story for the Pharisees, this blind bagger was the least likely. I finished with a story. I promise it's a finish this time. Gary was sharing with me this week. He's a youth worker in Cumber. If you're from Cumber, close your ears. And he was telling me that in Cumber it's very difficult and we need to listen to this. We need to listen to this good and we need to listen to it more as the years go on. It's hard for the young people that he connects with through the Youth for Christ stuff that he does to get them into a church like ours. What are the blind baggers today in Fitzroy? How many of us are there? We all are, but do we know we are? And would a blind bagger feel comfortable coming in? Well, Gary's sharing with me how this is becoming difficult to integrate the kids that he's dealing with back into the church. And he was talking then to somebody, maybe one of us, like one of us, not one of us, but like one of us, who was walking down the road with some of the young people he works with, and they were doing a lot of swearing, and it was a bit, bit getting a wee bit blue, so they crossed the road to the other side because they didn't want to be involved in that or been walking through that or hearing that. Is that where we are? Or would Jesus have moved into the bad language? Where would Jesus have been? Would he have crossed the road? Were the Pharisees with a blind bagger? Was Jesus with a blind bagger? Who are we following? Which one are we in the story? What do we fear? What is the cost? How courageous are we going to be? Are we prepared to get thrown out of the community? Because he gets thrown out of the community. And it's when he gets thrown out of the community that he gets his full revelation of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Lord, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the truth that would set us free. The truth is hard, Lord. It's hard to face. And so we ask you this morning to take these bare bones of my thinking, dry bones of my thinking, and into our individual lives that your spirit would whisper and blow and come alive to put flesh and muscle onto the bones of what we've just shared or thought about In order that we would see where we're fearful. In order that we might see where we're arrogant. In order that we might see how to be tender rather than harsh. In order that we might see around us the blind beggar who would dare, without any knowledge of all of this, to be used by you to lead us into all truth. Are we up for it, Lord? All the ways my Savior leads me, are we up for it? Give us the courage by your Spirit to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.